You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Tuesday, Canada, coast to coast to coast. Good news. Inflation is down to 7.6%. That's good news. You know things are bad when the best news is inflation is down to 7.6. It's down to more than twice the target, which is 2 to 3%. It's down. Yay, inflation. Now, we knew inflation is going to go down. Gas prices are falling. Food prices are falling. It's still a disaster. It's still ridiculously high. It's still eating at your paycheck. So for those people that say, well, at least it didn't go up. This is called the baseline shift. You know, when things are so crappy, well, at least you. Did you lose your leg? Yeah, it was terrible. At least you didn't lose your other leg. What? How about not? How about as bad that I lost a leg? Well, I could have lost two legs. Yeah, I could have, but I, like, it sucks. I just wanted to get that out of the way because there's nothing more to say. Inflation is maybe hopefully peaked and going down, but it's bad. Let me just give you the political impact of that. To quote Scott Reed, inflation kills governments. That's the way it works. Federal governments, especially. If you're Justin Trudeau, this is a problem that is metastasizing. If you are Christian Freeland, you cannot keep telling Canadians it's a global problem. If you claim that you are in, you have no, you're impotent, you have no power. Uh, we can't do anything. It's uh, it's a global crisis. Why are you elected? You're elected to solve problems, not to be helpless in the face of problems. Now, I understand there's global pressures on inflation. But all governments are facing the same thing. That doesn't mean you have no policies in your policy playbook. You do. It's real. 7.6 inflation. Wake up. Wake up. Welcome back from vacation. 7.6%. That's knocking on your door. That's the political grim reaper. You don't get that number down. You ain't going to survive. And then you pile on other issues. Today, today, we will be covering the hearings that are going on on Parliament Hill. And this is explosive because this has to do with the largest mass murder shooting in Canadian history. Mass shooting. April 2020. Nova Scotia. A man over two days. Dressed as an RCMP officer. Goes on a mass shooting spree. On April 28th. For hours. 13 hours. And killed 22 pregnant women, teachers. And in the ensuing investigation, which was a colossal screw-up, RCMP Chief Superintendent Darren Campbell took contemporaneous notes on a phone call with the, then, with the current RCMP Commissioner, Brenda Lucky, 
And he alleged in his notes, which police are trained to take, that she said she was getting pressure from Bill Blair, the minister, and the prime minister's office to reveal the hand, the, the, the weapon, the assault rifle used by the killer because of pending gun legislation. And L- Lucky has denied political pressure and Blair has denied it. But today, RCMP Chief Superintendent Darren Campbell, whose notes are at the very heart of the accusation of political interference into the investigation, the very heart of a very serious accusation, the very heart of something, again, these are government killers. These are political career killers. Political interference to the police is a very important line that must not be crossed. He is testifying today. And then, and then you will hear from Leah Scanlon, the strategic communication director who also said Brenda Lucky was pressured by federal officials and ministers to reveal it. Two high-ranking RCMP members will be testifying as they are right now, live. In fact, I'm going to play you a clip of it, and we're going to cover it. I'm going to bring in Mackenzie Gray because, I, you know, we're not sure. Let's listen in. Uh, Chris, I want you to listen in if we can right now. And this, I, this is RCMP uh, Chief Superintendent Darren Campbell, the beginning of his testimony. But we'll give you the latest. This is explosive. I left that meeting feeling deflated. And to borrow the commissioner's words, sad and disappointed. My position was firm that I would continue to protect the integrity of the investigation by not releasing any information that could have a negative impact on ongoing investigative efforts. We owe this to the victim families, the survivors, to the public, and to those tasked with completing an impartial, competent, and professional investigation. There are very good reasons for that. The approach to not releasing specific information related to the firearms remained in place by the investigative team until information related to the firearms used by Gabriel Ortman was released in November 2020 through an access to information and privacy request directed at the Prime Minister's office, not the RCMP. Within the disclosure of that information via ATIP was specific information related to the firearms used by Gabriel Ortman in the commission of the offences. The release of the unedited information would eventually have a negative impact on individuals and could have harmed the ongoing multi-agency investigation. So in summary, it was never my intention to enter into a political uh, or public disagreement or discussion as to what took place in that meeting, nor was my response to the meeting based on any personal issues with the commissioner or indeed any other individuals, nor was it based on politics. At the heart of the issue was a matter of principle and sound investigative best practices related to protecting the ongoing investigation, which at the time was in its early stages. The principle was the oath that I swore to uphold as a young recruit over three decades ago. I could not and would not break that oath, which is sworn by all members of the RCMP. Chair, this concludes my opening remarks, and I wish to thank you and the committee for the opportunity to speak with you today. I welcome any questions that committee members may have on the issue. You have just heard live. That is live. RCMP Chief Superintendent Darren Campbell and his statement, I would not break the oath. I was not going to release the information about the weapon Wartman used in the massacre. It would jeopardize the investigation. Despite pressure, he says, from Brenda Lucky. Now we are hearing from Leah Scanlon. She's going to testify now. They will both take questions. 
This is going to unfold live and breaking throughout our show. I'll tell you why this matters. Okay? I'll tell you why this matters. Because these two are the very heart. These two people, Chief Superintendent Darren Campbell, longtime 30-year member of the RCMP, Elias Scanlon, who's also um, uh, works at the RCMP, are at the very heart of an evidence, not just accusations, that there was political interference into the largest mass shooting in Canadian history. And political interference into police work is the very cornerstone of democracy. And if there's any evidence of that, that this committee finds today, there will and should be held to pay. And Leah Scanlon's testifying, and we're going to be getting clips of this when it matters. And I'm going to bring on Matt Mackenzie Gray, because this is, this is really important stuff. And this matters because for all the cynicism about government, for some of it's conspiratorial, some of it's garbage. But you, this is not. This is the very heart of the integrity of the system that we rely on. Police acting independently, not instruments of government. And if the government was pressuring the police, or if the RCMP commissioner on behalf of the government was pressuring her own officers, she's got to go. Now, she denies it. And the minister in charge, Bill Blair, denies it. But right now, as I'm speaking, the two people at the very heart of it are giving their view. So we'll follow that. In the meantime, as that is going on, is this the end of the muscle car era? Dodge says yes. We cover that next. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. A couple of years ago, I had to um, drive to Toronto. I need to rent a car. We're a one-car family. We drive, uh, you know, we have two kids, a big dog, uh, so we have an SUV. So I got to rent a car, and, and I rented a Dodge Charger, a muscle car. It was red. I was driving with my son. I loved it. People saw me and assumed I was having a midlife crisis. And I also love that. The, the, the charger, the red charger was so fun to drive. All I could think about was I will get a ticket. But I, I read today, and I love cars. I follow cars a lot. I don't buy a lot of cars because... I basically have kids, and, and that's a luxury I don't do. But I could tell you this. I, I, I read car magazines. I love cars. And when I read today that Dodge is going to discontinue the Challenger, discontinue the Charger, I wondered, is this the end of the muscle car era? Now, the muscle car era essentially is 60s and 70s, although arguably it started in the, the late 40s and early 50s with, like, the, the Rocket V8 and... Um, and other General Motors projects, but but essentially you're talking about the Roadrunner, the Super B, the Pontiac GTO, the Buick Grand Sport, uh, and then of course you get the uh, I, I would call the Mustang and the Camaro, the muscle cars, and then you get the Challenger and the Charger, V8 engine style cars. If or you can drop a V8 in, 
And I wonder if this is the end of it. Now, the guy that I go to when I want to talk about cars is my pal Flavio Volpe, the president of the Auto Part Manufacturers Association, and he's owned everything. He's owned two Chrysler 300s. He's owned Chargers. He knows muscle cars. He loves muscle cars. And he's on the line. Uh, all right. You, first of all, give me your passion for the muscle car, Flavio. Well, first of all, let me say, I did not know how much you knew about them. And uh, you rhymed off all the all the cars that kind of define that, that genre. I, uh, th- those muscle cars we're talking about get made in Brampton. And uh, I was one of uh, 300 Canadians lucky enough to get on the 2018 uh, Dodge Challenger Demon List, world's fastest car. Uh, Automotive News, when it came out, said, we should ban it. And I called my friend, the publisher there, another Canadian, Jason Stein, and I said, well, why don't you interview me on this one? I bought the car you guys think we should ban. It is the end of an era of people uh, who like to have fun. Uh, but it's being replaced. The muscle cars are being replaced. Oh, hold, uh, on, hold on, hold uh, on. Don't, 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 don't. Let's just dwell for a second on the <laughs> demon. Like, don't just... You you yeah. spend eighty five eighty six grand on a car. That's that's this is, the demon. Just if you for for our people who don't know the Challenger SRT demon, this was literally a demon. Uh, the Hellcat. This thing. Ha- now, th- this was a this was an awesome car. It was basically a almost like a a consumer based drag vehicle. How fast could you get this thing up to? Well, a hundred kilometers per hour in Canada. Uh, but oh, come uh, on. you, you took it on the track. track yeah. <laughs> if you were on a track, you could run a nine, six, five quarter mile for your listeners. who don't know how fast that is. I mean, this is it, on any track that's uh, sanctioned by the NHRA in uh, the U S if you ran less than 9.9 seconds and you don't have a proper harness and a roll bar, you'd be kicked off the track. So Dodge released a muscle car that was illegal to run on tracks. And uh, it was the fastest, fastest accelerating car in the world, 840 horsepower. And uh, if you could get traction, I mean, it was a lot of fun. Uh, that thing, uh, so I yeah, did a, you just smoke the tires? Did you just absolutely smoke them when you gunned it? Um, you couldn't get traction in that car under <laughs> any conditions uh, on the road. And I think I went through my first set in 11,000 kilometers. I love it. And, I, I uh, love it. That's fun. So, like, like, okay, so fun. what is it? What was the attraction of the muscle car? Be, and, and we'll get to whether it's ending, but because those people listening to us, Lavio, who, who are driving, some yeah. people hate the muscle car. But when you see the Challenger, when you see the Charger, even look, and I would just let me just say something about the Mustang because I know there's a lot of passionate Mustang people. When the Mustang was first invented, folks, it was not this pony car was actually marketed to women. It was not supposed to be a muscle car, and then it changed. Right, it was very different. The Mustang, yeah. the Mustang changed into a muscle car. It evolved to basically try to take on these cars, like the Camaro. But, but it, I consider it a muscle car now. Do you? Yeah, I would. And and the latest generation Mustang is probably the best of the lot in overall cars. I mean, it's amazing. And uh, you can get one a Super Snake uh, with 750 horsepower in it. You know, what's the appeal? Look for me. I mean, I can't speak for everybody else, but I think that people who like these cars. There's something a little visceral, a little vulgar uh, about how muscular they're shaped, uh, you know, how that how these cars idle. In the past, you know, you'd have a loping idle with uh, with whatever cam profile you had and the engine would go boom, 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 boom. There's just something alive about them. The newer ones, of course, idled a lot smoother, uh, but, uh, you know, they would 
get out of Dodge real quick, no pun intended. Mm. And and never mind what comes out of the tailpipe. I know, you know we're 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 all very much focused on that now. But the sound that came out of that uh, is, I mean, we once the era ends, these V8 uh, muscle cars, and you'll never get that sound again. And uh, that's what keeps some of us out of high performance electric cars. You know, we like to hear these cars. But and, actually, uh, some of these electric cars, cars, they actually have an artificial sound. But it's not its not the same as a 6.2 liter V8 that you've had under the hood of the Hellcat, right? Like, that's a little different story. Yeah. But but is this the end, Flavio, of the muscle car? Like, is is the era over? I think so. I think, I think we're changing regulations uh, for emissions and, and, and expectation of fuel economy in all the major markets in the world and all these companies. Uh, they've got to get out of it. They'll be penalized if they don't. It'll be very difficult for them to sell cars profitably if they don't. And, you know, that's why Dodge said we're going to do final edition uh, on on these cars, but we will still, we may even build Charger and Challengers uh, as electric vehicles. But yeah. but if you grew up with V8s, got to go get them now. And what happens in Brampton where they built them? Well, we saw we saw an announcement. I mean, I was there. It was the, the first week of June where uh, Stellantis, which is the parent company now, has committed to building a new product in Brampton. They haven't said what it is, uh, but it's going to be electric. And so all the all the people in Brampton, uh, the, the 3,000 people in that site and the 12,000 people who build parts to supply that site, well, they're going to be building electric vehicles and parts that go on an electric vehicle. Great you know, for business. Great, great for, for business. But, but like, like I do. I now here's the thing. You know, when you get in the, in, in a Charger or the yeah. Challenger, and I'm going to speak about those because that's the, the announcement today. You know, like you get pressed back in the seat. But I've been in some of these electric cars, even small, like even the Hyundai yeah. Ionic, let alone a Tesla or something. You floor that an electric car's torque is so unbelievable. You the acceleration on an electric car is better. It's even crazier. Yeah. I can't even believe it. You do have that sensation. I got to give them that. No question at all. And they only have one gear, so you're not changing. You're not shifting. Uh, you know, but I like. I love the sound. You know, I'm building an electric car, Project Arrow. You know, we're. You know, I'm. We're doing our part. We're making our own. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I had the demon, uh, I had, uh, the 300 SRT when it first came out, you know, everybody said, well, what's that car? It looks like a Bentley and it's made by Chrysler and it's Chrysler 300, 25 horsepower. Yeah. I drove my kids to school in that three booster seats in the back. And, uh, I drop them off, uh, at school in, uh, in kindergarten, uh, in a uh, car with more horsepower than a Lamborghini Countach. That's what we did in Brampton. I, lo- I loved it. I drove that car for 200,000 kilometers. Then I replaced it with a Charger SRT. And uh, then, then when I got rid of that, you know, we got the uh, we got the Demon SRT. It, it, I, I'm very, very fond of the, that product, and I'm very, very fond of the mm. fact that we did that in Canada. And uh, you know, in in Brampton, in the Toronto area, everybody thinks these are these are the signature American vehicles. Well, they're yeah. secretly Canadian. Flavia Volpe, president of the Auto Parts Manufacturers Association, romancing the end of an era, the end of the muscle car. I, I love this. Come on, I, I'll talk cars with you all day. You know way more than me, but I love it. I love it. I love this I don't conversation. Know. You're pretty good. I love this stuff. Uh, thanks, good. pal. I, listen, come on anytime. Yes. And folks, text me at seven ten ten. What do you think of the era of the end of the muscle car? I'd love to hear from you. Now, is it the end of the nursing era? Next.
nickel and diming the conversations. Literally, it's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. What is the true cost of health care? And what's driving it up? There's lots of factors. Healthcare is the number one budget item for every province. Your tax dollars, most of them go into the healthcare system. And guess what? If you don't think you should be paying attention to the nursing crisis, get this. If you say, I don't care about the nursing crisis, it doesn't impact me. It does. It impacts your wallet. It impacts everything, but it impacts your wallet. Why? Because according to a new report, Temporary agency nurses, not enough nurses, you got to get a temp nurse. Spending on that in Ontario, especially at the largest hospitals, has skyrocketed. One hospital, according to this report, spent 550% more. That is millions and millions of dollars. Why do we need temp Nurses. Well, to talk more about this, Dr. Kevin Smith is the president and CEO of the University Health Network, and he joins us now. Dr. Smith, first of all, thank you for being here. Thanks for your work. Uh, give us a sense of why the um, Toronto Hospital Network uh, and, and so many hospitals are spending so much on temporary agency nurses. Well, hi, Evan. Nice to be with you again. Thank you. Um, really, it's a, it's a bottom line of we don't have enough nurses. Uh, and nurses have been making decisions to leave active full-time employment uh, for um, agency work in many of those cases. Why are they doing that? Uh, you know what? L- listening to a number of my nursing colleagues and, part, and some of the folks at ONA, clearly quality of work life, uh, the, the number of patients they're looking after, the stress of COVID, that now catch-up challenges that we have of all the delayed procedures that we saw that had to wait because of COVID, and then add on top of that to even more stressful conditions. They're, they're tired, they're burnt out, they need a break, and we're at this point saying we also need to ramp up both for catch-up, for increasing COVID cases, and for potentially a flu season in the fall. Not a lot of light at the end of the tunnel for young nurses. I'm speaking to Dr. Kevin Smith, president of the CEO uh, and CEO of the University Health Network. And, and I want to credit the Toronto Star. Uh, they broke this story. They spoke about it. I, I'm looking at one of their articles on this. I always like to credit the agency that we got this from. Good work at the Star there. Uh, if you're a nurse, Doc, Dr. Smith, and you think, look, I'm stressed. It's been a nightmare. I'm overworked. If I join a, a temporary agency, am I going to get paid more? In other words, is it, you know, when a hospital needs to call a temp agency for a nurse, are they paying more? And is that nurse, do they have better hours? Do they have more flexibility? And do they get more money? Yeah. So uh, compensation in an environment like UHN or any complex hospital is, is a lot more than kind of what the base rate is or the hourly rate. So it's a it's a kind of complicated answer. So forgive me. Yes, they likely are getting more money. But don't forget, they're not getting benefits. They're not getting sick time. They're not getting the Health Care of Ontario pension plan. But what we are hearing, particularly from earlier career nurses, is I need cash flow. I need to pay more for my housing, pay more for my food, pay more for my transport. To come to a place like University Health Network, 
you're driving past, if you don't live downtown, a bunch of other community hospitals, which again, adds expense. And we have a centrally negotiated contract with the Ontario Nursing Association. Nurses, for the most part, in all unionized hospitals, make the same amount of money. And really and truly, after all we've been through over the past two and a half years, a number are saying, it does give me more flexibility. If I don't want to work on a Friday, I don't have an assignment. No one can call me in. So I think we obviously really do have to re-examine what it looks like, feels like, and how we can bring quality of nursing work life back, um, while at the same time recognizing we have a heck of a lot of work to do for patients who've been waiting. And then, Doc, it's it's a cycle, right? More nurses leave for the temporary the, the temporary agency. It's more flexible. It's better cash flow. Totally. Though they give up benefits, that makes the acute nursing shortage more acute. That means the hospitals have to pay more to the temp agencies, and it's a vicious exactly. cycle. It's a vicious cycle. And you know what? The overall issue is the supply of registered nurses. So the deno- we have to grow the denominator. And we know we've been looking at um, how do we get more foreign trained nurses licensed in Ontario, the college working with the ministry on that one. Um, How do we look at extenders? So our PSW colleagues and technicians, technologists, other people that we can add to the to the workforce who would under the scope of nurses support them. And similarly, really look at full scope of practice across the entire continuum of healthcare providers. But right at the moment, the burning platform unquestionably is getting quality of nursing workplace back to where it should be. But and but but it's it, it's tricky, right? Like imagine uh, trying to recruit a nurse in this crisis. Nurses are leaving because the the life is hard, and hard. they don't feel they're you know. Look, if you and I want to recruit, there's two ways. You know, you have a passion for something. No one goes into nursing because they don't have a passion to care for people. It's like you, so they're already passionate. They're committed people. But it's clearly not enough. The best way to recruit people to a job, of course, is compensate them. That's what the market says. They're clearly not getting compensated enough. Yeah, I think compensation is part of it. But I think uh, equally, uh, the other half of that same coin is feeling um, resilient in the workplace, feeling like the I'm able to do really good care for my patients over and over. We hear nurses saying, I don't feel good about the, the standard of care I can op- offer when we don't have a full complement. So I think it's both. I think it absolutely is fair compensation, recognizing supply and demand does affect the cost. And then also, is this work enjoyable? Am I working with a team that I enjoy working with? Are there enough of us to provide really good care? Are there other members of the team who supplement the kind of care we can provide? And all of those things uh, need to come together. Evan, as you know, this isn't Ontario, this isn't Canada, this is a worldwide challenge. And we've been talking about it for a long time. How do we attract people both into nursing who wish to stay there? Uh, COVID has exacerbated this greatly. And, you know, people who we saw historically finding ways to make it work have said, I am just at the end of my tether. This has burnt me out in a way that I've never experienced before. And I want to enjoy caring for patients, and I want to enjoy working with a team that I respect and that respects me. And at the moment, it is a very challenging work environment. Boy, it is. What's it costing uh, the system now to use these temp nurses? Uh, so, you know what, I, I don't actually have a good line of sight into, into what the, um, each of them bills, but I would say it's costing roughly 
a hundred dollars an hour, eighty-five to a hundred dollars an hour. Um, if you looked at the maximum rate for an RN in most hospitals, it's probably fifty to fifty-five dollars an hour plus uh, benefits. Benefits being at about forty to fifty percent when you include the pension. Um, so it's probably a twenty to twenty-five percent premium that the nurse would be getting. Now, on that, of course, he or she needs to pay taxes, which you wouldn't on benefits or um, or pension at this time. But nonetheless, it is about cash flow for most of those young nurses, as well as flexibility. If I'm having a challenging mental health day, if I've had a number of rough shifts, if I have a sick kid, in the model that you're dealing with with an agency, you simply say, I'm not available. Mm. In our environment, and you know, we have to own some of this, there have been times when we've had to ask people to come back from vacation, or we don't have anybody else to look after the patient, you have to come in. And we have to get beyond that. We have to yeah. figure out a way to have an adequate number of nurses and others who can support nurses so that they can work the amount of time they wish to, do great nursing care, leave with their you know, strong psychology intact, and again, feel like uh, I'm doing what I went into nursing for. And they're being valued. Uh, Dr. Kevin Smith is the president and CEO of the University Health Network. Um, thanks, Doc. Uh, thanks for your work. And, and these are really urgent situation. Nurses, the, the backbone of the system as well. Um, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. We will take a break. The uh, breaking news, the testimony from the RCMP officers about potential political interference is going on. Strong views, powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the program. The Standing Committee on Public Safety is investigating the allegations of political interference into the 2020 Nova Scotia mass murder investigation. We will have all the details that are breaking right now. It's live right now, and we'll have all the details uh, in the next Segment, I can tell you this, and I'm listening at the break to it. The two RCMP members, Campbell and Scanlon, who are testifying, are unwavering that they heard political interference from the commissioner despite her denials. They are taking on their boss. Talk about courageous. They are sitting in front of a committee and speaking truth to power. That's what they say they're doing. And it takes some stones to be a superintendent like Campbell right now and to stare at a group of politicians and say, the commissioner made me feel dumb and I believe she was pressuring me to violate my oath because of the important upcoming legislation from the Liberal Party, the Liberal government. And Scanlon has said he's right. I remember his way. This is a big deal. So we're going to break it down for you. We're going to give you the clips. In the the meantime, 
earlier in the program, I announced that Dodge is going to be canceling its muscle cars, the Charger. The Charger's going to be gone. The end of an era. Goodbye, Charger. Goodbye, Challenger. Brampton built muscle cars. And Flavio Volpe came on and said, I've owned those. I've owned the, the Chrysler 300. All produced at the Stellantis Brampton assembly plant. And it's done. They're phasing them out. And, and a lot of you are sad about it. So, I, so I'm going to throw open the lines on this. Because I have to get a new car within about eight months. I'm a lease car person. Now, somebody said, why don't you own? I get it. I don't want to get lectured on leasing versus ownership. There's, there's price issues and there's all sorts of reasons why we lease not own. But one 633 or 71010. If you are a muscle car person, let me know. One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. Is it the end of the muscle car era? But more for everyone, is the next car you buy? If you were buying a new car right now, would you still buy a gas car, or are you looking for an electric? Electric is expensive. Electric has range anxiety, but electric is the future. They need better infrastructure. They need better range. I think there's lots of still barriers to a good electric car. But is the next car you buy electric or hybrid? Hi, Evan. The muscle car era ended 30 years ago, and rightly so. These are not good cars. Heavy, can't turn or brake, not reliable. I don't consider the modern cars you mentioned muscle cars for the above reasons. They can handle the brake and are reliable. Also, in regards to uh, EVs, instant torque is fun for two minutes. Three stop signs, then it's boring. There's no sound, smell, or handling. I drove a Tesla Model 3 and a Y and Ionic 5. And I even drove a gem doorless electricity car 10 years ago. A Miata is more fun and enjoyable. I kind of agree with you. Love to hear you talking about cars. John from Montreal. John, call in. I love it. I'll talk cars with you all day. Evan, the muscle car will live forever. I have a 1971 El Camino. Oh, the El Camino SS 454. 454. Wow. The El Camino 71. Kind of a great car. Makes me so incredibly happy regardless of the price of gas. I call it 10 smiles to the gallon. Your guess is absolutely right. There's nothing like the sound of a big block Chevy, Marv. Thanks, Marv. Marv, do you still drive the 71 El Camino? I hope not in the winter. Rear wheel drive, by the way. This is the thing about a lot of muscle cars. Rear wheel drive, crappy for winter driving. Let me just put that out there. Thanks, Evan. Like, you, you want to see a, a muscle car fishtail driving in the winter? I bet you, by the way, I bet you your 71 El Camino fishtails. Let me know, Marv. Love old Dodge muscle cars, Evan. The body lines of the Mopar are all great engines. I'm 59, bought a 79 Dodge half ton, short box 82 and 83. I installed a 69 speed automatic. Oh, this is it. We're like becoming car radio now. Too bad no more V8, says Brian. Please, please, please inundate me with car time. Here's the other thing I do. I don't know if you, Sam, do this. I am like at night, I watch all those car restoration shows like on the Netflix situation, rust Valley restores. Love it. Any show that's restoring cars. I my, my wife's like, why do you watch that stuff? And I'll tell you one, one reason I watch it. I like, first of all, it's short. Second of all, like it's complete. You take a crappy looking car and you restore it and it's beautiful. And I'm obsessed with those. 
It is really satisfying. I used to not really be into it, but then my boyfriend is super into that. So sometimes we'll watch videos like that. And it is really, it's very satisfying just seeing something oh, yeah. you know, get restored. Tina is on the line. Tina from Quebec. You've got a muscle car fantasy. What's cooking? My dream car was a 69 GTO Judge. I so badly wanted to have one of those, but I knew it was never going to happen, unfortunately. Why? Because hardly find them. They're hard they're to so find. They're hard to find. Yes. In good condition at that. And they're pricey. And, I, and my dad had one when he was younger, and I wanted to smack him upside the head when he told me he ran into a telephone pole. Oh, my God. Him. What color? Like, you know, the fa- that some of them were orange. It was the orange, the cla- that classic oh, orange. So classic. Oh, that was my dream. I had pictures of it up on my wall. And Don't give up on the dream, Tina. I, like, I can drive the car. I can drive sick, damn it. Oh, my. You, you know you know, if you drove the GTO, the 69 GTO now, it would be like, gas station, yeah. gas station. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Especially being living in the country and those country roads and like, now what's around? Let's go. But am I right? Those that was a rear wheel drive, right? You'd fishtail like hell on that. Yeah, yeah, but that's half the fun. <laughs> Tina, I want Tina to get the sixty nine GTO. Don't give up on the fantasy. Thanks for the call. That is great. And look, that that it does remind you of of another era. Your dad. That's fantastic. Your dad probably loved the hell out of that. Uh, Bruce and Grimsby, what's up? Hi, Evan. My son took over my truck. I had a night. Well, I have a nineteen ninety Dodge Cummins five speed. Are they going to get rid of the diesel now? I'll tell you that, baby, it smokes and it's five-speed. Not many kids know how to run them anymore. Yeah, well, first of all, diesel's expensive too, right? Remember when diesel was cheaper than gas? It's the other way around. Yeah, but like I said, there's nothing better than seeing that thing going up the road on these country roads with the smoke burling out of it. When's that going to come to an end? Well, and you could also see like the ozone layer like unzip over top of the car. But I'm with you. There's something something great about it, even though we know it's the end of an era. Good one, though. Your son, I hope he enjoys it. Thanks for the call. I got, listen, maybe we could turn this whole show into a car show. Like, I love it. Hi, Evan. In the market for a new car will not be an EV because I keep my car for 12 to 15 years. Well, like, I don't know. You better buy a good car because in 10 or 15 years, you're not set. It's going to be all EVs. Evan, Audi and Mercedes still make V8s. I'm driving a 2013 Audi S6 with a four-liter twin turbo that puts out 460 horsepower and hits 100 kilometers. Really? 100 clicks in 3.9 seconds and a quarter mile. Wow. As a mechanic, it's a blast to go uh, in this car. Nice. Nice. All right. uh, Text me. I I could read these all day. We're going to get back to the breaking news. But text me at 71010 more muscle car stuff. I love that. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Hey, welcome back. The uh, Standing Committee investigating allegations of political interference into the 2020 mass shooting in Nova Scotia is going on right now. I want to tell you why this is important. The very heart of whatever you believe in democracy, whether you are a conservative, a liberal, NDP, radical, anarchist, democracy's fundamental basis is 
free judicial system. No political interference with the police. No political interference with the justice system. No political interference. It's a cornerstone. Politicians don't tell the police what to do. That's a dictatorship. That's dangerous. They make laws, but they don't tell the cops what to do. And when the RCMP, after 22 people were gunned down in April of 2020, when a mass shooter for 13 hours was on a rampage and the RCMP was not acting quick enough, we know that. We've heard that all about that. But in the aftermath of it, critical investigations were going on. And there is an allegation that Brenda Lucky, the then commissioner, spoke to Chief Superintendent Darren Campbell, who took contemporaneous notes on April 28th. And he said in his notes, and he testified today, that she pressured him into revealing the weapon the killer used because of upcoming liberal gun legislation. And here's what Chief Superintendent Darren Campbell said. The commissioner also said that she had promised the minister and the prime minister's office that information about the firearms would be included in the press briefing. As detailed in my notes, I attempted to explain to the commissioner that I could not and would not release that information at that time as a premature release could have a negative impact on the investigation. And according to Campbell, what did she say then? It was at that time the commissioner told my colleagues and I that we didn't understand that this was tied to pending legislation that would make officers and the public safer. I felt that meeting, I left that meeting feeling deflated and to borrow the commissioner's words, sad and disappointed. Let me tell you right there is the line. Now this directly contradicts Minister Bill Blair and directly contradicts Commissioner Lucky. The question is, is it new and what now? To talk about this, he's been monitoring it, is CTV National News producer, uh, and on-air journalist Mackenzie Gray. He covers Parliament Hill, and he is with me in studio with his beard. Um, Mac, le- le- this is the very heart of this was Campbell, and we'll get to Scanlon in a minute. He did not back off. He stuck with his line, Evan. And, and this is similar to what he'd said in letters, not letters, and notes that he had taken after the meeting, saying that, look, there was pressure on me to put this information out there. He said today, in no uncertain terms, the commissioner was upset that we did not release this information about the guns used. The RCMP actually never released the information about the guns, Evan. It was through an A-tip that came out in November of 2020 that that's how the information actually got out. Just an A-tip is an access to information request, folks. And it did not come from the RCMP. It came from the government. Correct. It was uh, information that uh, reporters put towards the government, and they released that information there. April 28th was the day that this meeting took place between Superintendent Darren Campbell from the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, where Mr. Campbell has said that there was pressure from Ms. Lucky to release this information, saying, quote, that there was a promise that she made to the prime minister's office and to Bill Blair that this information would be released to have the government put forward information. That's on April 28th. On May 1st, Bill Blair comes out with the prime minister and says they they put an order in council out saying that basically hundreds of guns are now uh, illegal in Canada for people to be able to use. And Bill Blair said at the time, without saying what the guns were, that people could be assured, that Canadians could be assured, that the families in Nova Scotia could be assured that the guns that were used in that shooting were included in this. But it wasn't until November 2020 that that came out. And, you know, Mr. Campbell today was asked on numerous occasions, why could that information not be put forward? And he said repeatedly, 
that it was to maintain the integrity of the investigation that was ongoing into Gabriel Wartman, the shooter, that they could not release that information. Now, it's important to note that that investigation has not led to any cross-border charges. There were some charges from his family uh, dealing with ammunition, uh, but there has been no you know, kind of further information or further charges that have come from that investigation uh, with that information that the RCMP, or at least uh, Mr. Campbell, did not want public at that time. Okay, by the way, th- I just want to play, folks, this clip. I'm speaking to Mackenzie Gray, a CTV National News producer here on Parliament Hill, who's covering this story. Here's uh, Superintendent Campbell again saying that Commissioner Lucky made him feel stupid. The commissioner uh, made me feel as if I was stupid and I didn't seem to understand the importance of why this information was important to go out, the information specific to the firearms as it was related to, to the um, legislation. Here's why that's important. The commissioner, Brenda Lucky, made a guy who's 30 years on the force feel stupid because he didn't understand what he called his oath. Outrageous. She even apologized for her tone. That's way out of line. But then again, he uses the word. And let's be clear. Police use their words carefully as it related to the legislation. When he says that, he's saying that's political interference. Mac. That's serious. And then Scanlon was asked, and she backed him up. Their stories have been similar throughout this whole time, Evan, backing up notes that have been presented at the Mass Casualty Commission out in Nova Scotia, essentially saying that there was this political pressure put on by Brenda Lucky, put on by Bill Blair, the then emergency uh, you know, preparedness Prepared. minister who was in charge of this issue. You know, The one thing that stuck out to me too, though, Evan, was – uh, Superintendent Campbell was asked about whether or not he kind of pushed forward or pushed back on Brenda Lucky when she brought up this idea that she'd made this promise to the government to release this information. He didn't. He said, I didn't want to hear anything more about it, and I didn't ask about it. And it sounds like, too, he didn't raise that he felt in that meeting that there was a problem with what Miss Lucky was doing. So that really, to me, is the big news and the new information that comes out of this, that he didn't push back at that point in time. He just left the meeting after, wrote this down in this notes, and then it's become public after the fact that there was allegedly this mm. pressure put on them to release this information about the guns. Okay, I will say, now the question is, what now? A conservative member of parliament is already putting forward a standing order that they want to investigate this further. How do you resolve this? You can't just say, well, I guess Brenda Lucky says she didn't do it. And, uh, Bill Blair said, he, of course she says he, she didn't do it, because if she did do it, she's got to lose her job. Of course Bill Blair says he didn't do it, because it, he knows it's wrong. But these people said these are credible people with notes. What now? Well, they're going to be having, uh, or at least the committee should be debating now. There was a motion put forward by one of the conservative MPs to have Bill Blair's chief of staff come and speak and some other uh, members of the uh, public safety uh, department as well to come and speak, too. So that should be happening sometime in December if the members of the committee vote on that. Uh, in but, September, not December. I, I said September. Didn't okay, I? Yeah, no, I, I, I thought you said December. Okay, yeah, it's, September. It's in yeah. September when, uh, yeah. if the committee votes forward, I would expect that that motion will pass. But once we move past that point, Evan, I don't know uh, what more can be done on here. We've heard kind of both sides of the story. We've heard from Elias Gandlin. We've heard from Darren Campbell. We've heard from Brenda Lucky. We've heard from Bill Blair. They have differing views of how that meeting went. I think, uh, as the Prime Minister said this before, people experiencing things differently. And I think that's what we have at this point in time right here, Evan, where one side views things differently, the other side views things another way. And unless there's a tape or something else, uh, I don't know how we continue to move forward. I will tell you, in my view... First of all, there sh- there were at least eight other people, I think, as I counted in the original in the in the room, right, in these calls. So we got to hear more people. Number one, number two. 
the public demands some accountability. If you've got a superintendent and a senior communications officer saying that this is what they heard, either they're lying or someone's lying. And the idea that I agree with you, Mac, that it's, it's going to be hard to resolve, but it, we cannot let this go. This, to me, is the very heart of what you, we cover. It's follow the money, but follow the interference. Now, I'm going to just switch topics because I got less than a minute. Because we were talking about muscle cars. Now, I don't know if you folks have seen Mac on TV. He's always on TVs. Uh, he's a very good reporter, as, as well as a producer. But he's always got a beard. And I'm always telling him forever to shave his beard, you know? Because, now it looks good, but, you know, and he's a handsome fella. We call him Abraham Lincoln here in the newsroom. But, and I got 30 seconds, but now I've basically joined the Beard Brigade. The, the listeners need to know, because you're not doing power play, you're not doing question period. People aren't seeing you, they're hearing you, Evan. But you've copied me and grown your beard out. I think the longest I've ever seen it. You've had this on question period before, but you're taking it to another level right now. Yeah, yeah, I have. I've, I've joined the beard. Every summer I do it, but I, at your inspiration, I'm trying to grow it longer. Uh, it's my rabbinical phase. We'll be right back. Bringing the story to life. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show, Canada, coast to coast to coast. I say that third coast, I should say, because one of my kids is paddling a canoe near Tuktoyaktuk right now. I haven't spoken to him in 47 days. 40, it's a 52-day canoe trip. 52-day Whitewater River canoe trip. They're probably in the Beaufort Sea. We haven't spoken to them. Of course, you can't reach them. They just get these pings every three weeks or something. It's probably in the Beaufort Sea paddling towards Tuktoyaktuk through the Husky Lakes right now. So I say coast to coast to coast because somewhere, coast to coast to coast, north, hope I'm reaching one of my kids. Who, by the way, I, I spent three months in the Arctic when I was his age um, with the Dene in Fort Good Hope. He's, he's even farther north towards Tuk. Um, a year ago, as we spoke about yesterday, was the mark the time, I, I don't like to use the word anniversary, where the Taliban retook over Afghanistan. It's a disaster since. And as we spoke about yesterday, Canada has failed to even come close to getting the 40,000 refugees it's promised out of Afghanistan, let alone really help the, the, the interpreters and the families of the interpreters who helped the Canadians, who risked their lives during the war, who put on the uniform, who saved Canadian lives. We spoke to a Canadian veteran yesterday whose life was saved multiple times by Afghan interpreters. And yet, and yet, and yet, as the NDP immigration critic Jenny Kwan says, the federal government needs to do more to help Afghans who assisted Canadian forces flee the Taliban. It is not acceptable. No more excuses. Get on with it and do your job. Fulfill the responsibility and the duty of bringing them to safety. But they're not. Now, Mariam Sahar was an interpreter for Canadian troops and American troops. And she did it when she was just 15 years old. The only woman interpreter in the Canadian forces from 2009 to 2011. She did come to Ottawa as part of the resettlement program. But her family is still there. Her sister, her brother-in-law, and their baby stuck in Pakistan. And she joins us now. Mariam Sahar, um, you know it's a pleasure to, to talk to you again and, and to speak with you again. And, and I can't believe we're still talking about trying to get your, your, your beloved family out into safety. How are you, Mariam? Um, 
Thank you so much, uh, Ewan, uh, for giving me once again the opportunity to be on your show. And first and foremost, on a personal note, I would like to express my deep gratitude to you for your support and shining a light on the challenges of my family had um, in the past year and other Afghan families are having in coming to Canada, especially of the interpreters and their family. We truly um, are grateful and really appreciate it and want to thank you and your whole team on this. Um, it's uh, quite uh, emotional um, that it has been a year um, that we are still struggling uh, with a lot of bureaucracy. Um, the government of Canada has certainly uh, failed the Afghan interpreters. Um, there's still a lot of requirements uh, that needs to be fulfilled uh, before they brought to um, Canada. But I was, you know, one of the few lucky ones that three of my members of the family made it out uh, last year on the last flight um, during the evacuation. But I'm still uh, fighting for my sister who's stuck in, in, in Pakistan with my brother-in-law and she had a baby um, a week ago and she was denied medical treatment in Pakistan because she needed a C-section. And then I had to step in to help them financially from here to take her to a private hospital. And then they were not giving, I mean, I'm getting emotional even because like that baby was not given a birth certificate. They struggled to get a birth certificate for him. And this is how they're living. The humiliation, the insult, the disrespect that they have in, 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 in Pakistan because they're refugees and they are escaping for their life. And when, let's be very clear, you know, we had homes. We had a good life in Afghanistan. Right. But all of the sudden things collapse and people are desperate to flee because of our association with the Canadian military. And this is not only about my family here, Ewan. This is about a lot of the interpreters, a lot of the 1,500 people that are stuck in Pakistan and are so desperate. I mean, the paperwork is so ridiculous, Canadian. I swear to God, Ewan. I mean... When we were getting hired as an interpreter, they didn't even inquire about our birth certificate. I, I mean, this is not the country I know. This is not the people I know. I know that the Canadian people really care. And I really want just once the Canadian government should value a moral leadership, compassion, our paperwork. We could, you know, we could also do more to support, you know, these people to come to Canada, and it's simple, you know, does Canada want to be known as a country of action and compassion or one of our paperwork and cowardice? I mean, these people are decent, you know, they want, they care, our military, our veterans, you know, a lot of other Canadian people, you know, fighting hard. And let me be very clear with you, Ewan, my family, the three members that I've arrived, they've been blessed with the generosity of Canadian people. They were resettled within a week, and they had their own Afghan kitchen. You know, how many refugees get that here in, 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 in the world? And here, you know, them being in Canada and having their own Afghan kitchen within a week. I mean, that's the country I know. That's the people I know. But when you look at the government and the bureaucracy and, you know, the struggle that these people go through in other countries in, in, in Afghanistan, I think it's very shameful. And I, I mean, Canada doesn't deserve that type of a repetition in the world because this country is truly a nice a nice and a generous place for the most vulnerable people mm. you know and i have seen it so 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 i'm speaking to uh mariam sahara former interpreter what needs to happen right now i know you've called this shameful and embarrassment so if you if 
if you could speak to the immigration minister right now, what would you want right now? Well, it's 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 simple. Loosen the bureaucratic rules, Evan. Speak to the government of uh, Pakistan to issue the exit permit so the people who are already approved in Pakistan, so they get on the plane and make it to Canada. Speak to the, the government of Pakistan to issue a border pass so the people who are stuck and who have been given G numbers in Afghanistan so they can make it to Pakistan and then eventually their documents to be processed and to bring it here. Like, that's all we need from this government. I mean, they're saying 40,000, 17,300 arrived. And then, you know, the deputy prime minister, Christopher Freeland, is saying, well, we should not be thinking about the past tense. No, we surely do think about the past tense because this is a failure. This is not a success. This, these are even the people who risk their life, you know, to help this country, to champion the values of this country. You know, the military, the veterans, you know, are struggling right now. I have so many military people. I have so many veterans friends who are working hard to get their interpreters out. And when they get in touch with IRCC or any other people who are involved in this whole process, they're getting no positive response or the response they get is auto automatic reply. That's not helpful. I mean, you're talking about 40,000 people here, you know, that you're trying to build, uh, you're trying to bring. But the people who really go through this process and the people who are stuck and the people who are asked like a thousand papers and documents to show to, you know, in order to come to Canada. I mean, that's not the way you deal with this process, because if you continue to demand and put these rules and not loosen it, you will never ever be able to bring all these people, you know, not even in 10 years if they're talking about 2024, you know. Look, I always have a place for you and 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 your to try to help your family, Mariam Sahar. You, you you did so much for our country, and we got to help your family get out uh, get out of Pakistan. It seems simple. Bring them here, uh, like you, good citizens, and we need to help. And um, I really thank you for your your bravery and your and and your continued advocacy because you're right. It's embarrassing that this is happening and it's shameful. Thank you. Thanks, Emma, for having me on your show again. You know, anytime. Thanks, Mariam. All right. Uh, what, what, what country are we? Like when we ask people to risk their lives, like Mariam did, to fight a brutal regime like the Taliban, and in return, we don't bring them and her family. They'll save our family members and we won't save theirs. Are you kidding me? All right, I got to take a break. We'll be right back. Good story coming up. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show. On the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the program. It is time to hear from you, and I and I need a little advice. Um, it is, of course, um, the last vestiges of the holiday summer. So why not talk a bit about summer protocols? 
when you're going away with your family, do you book time together? Our family, we do have a family cottage. We've had it in our family since the 70s. We have cousins on the lake. And my mom, it's basically her, her primary residence. And we all join her up there. My, until, my dad was there, of course, until last summer was his last summer. Um, as you know, my dad passed away nine months ago, just nine months ago. So this is our first summer without my dad. And they spend all their time there. And my mom, who lives up there um, most of her time, um, was up there with my brother and my sister and my sister's family, and my brother's family. And we all love to go the same two weeks and lots of cousins come up at the same time and they rent places or they have a place there. And it's, it's a real, like we have 40 people there. And we all pack it in. Uh, my brother and my, uh, my wife and my brother and, and his wife, we share like a, like a cabin. And there's a, a, a little washroom that joins our room so we can hear if you pee, everyone hears it. And if you do anything else, which our wives apparently don't like to do, I don't know how they do it. But there's lots of politics of peeing. Like my brother and I had this huge fight, fight slash argument. We don't fight that much. But he said to me, listen. In the middle of the night, I have to get up to pee, and you put the seat down. I said, of course I put the seat down. When I get up to pee, I lift the seat up, and when I finish, I put the seat down, because if my wife wants to get up, she has to have the seat down so she can pee. He goes, that's crazy. She could just put the seat down. I don't want to get up and touch the toilet seat, which could have pee on it, so just keep it up. I said, no, no, no. The man lifts the thing up and then you put it back down that's the politics of peeing so then i asked his wife and his wife says i don't care because he's so crazy the way he pees i don't even sit down i do basically a bomber run she doesn't even sit down she does a floater i was like you do a floater you're that crazy yeah she goes i don't know with you two idiots in the middle of the night what you're peeing on and so what i do then my brother got mad at me because Often before bed, I leave the cabin, I walk into the woods, and I pee. Why? He says, why are you doing that? That's gross. I sometimes walk in the woods. I said, it's a woods. It's a forest. We're at the cottage. Who gives a darn? Pee in the woods. He goes, you just walk right off the little path and pee right there. I said, yeah, I do. I say, why? He goes, because we have at our place... A little rule that you may have, septic system-wise. If it's yellow, let it mellow. And if it's brown, flush it down. If it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. It's obvious. And so I don't want my pee smelling all through the night. Sitting, mellowing out. I pee, my brother pees, no one's flushing. The place stinks. So I, I thought, out of an act of respect, go out and pee in the bushes. I pee on the pine needles. He thinks that's ridiculous, like I'm an animal. I don't know when my brother, who's a big, big, tough guy, like doesn't. And, and then, of course, after screaming at me, literally the next day I see him in the bush peeing. I'm like, oh, he says, well, you do it. I said, you've always done it. 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. What are your cottage protocols? What are your family politics, the politics of peeing? How do you do that? You could text me at 71010. Or one eight five five six three three ten ten. Vince has just told me peeing in the woods also deters coyotes. Thank you, Vince. I would sore fight with you any day. Yes, Vince, you're right. The benefits of peeing outside are myriad. You see the stars. 
you have a peaceful moment alone. I let out my dog Puddle, Puddle pees, I pee. It's communion, and we deter the coyotes. Evan, how about everyone sits down? Well, yes, I will admit that because literally the washroom is right beside our bed, so you can hear everything. I have, on occasion, not tried to aim to hit the inside of the bowl, which is the proper etiquette for a man peeing standing when uh, other people are sleeping. I have occasionally hit the deck, as it were, and done the sit-down pee. Just not my nature. Evan, I pee sitting down because if you stand, all the droplets splash everywhere. At the top. Well, I don't know how tall you are. Like, I'm 6'4", and I don't, like, not everything splashes. But I will say, in the dark, you're not wearing your glasses, it's pitch black, you slide the door open to the, uh, you know, between the rooms, and you're trying to hit the side of the bowl, you're getting some splash. You're getting some splash. I'll admit that. You're getting some splash. Um, Sonia's on the phone. Go ahead, Sonia. In the process of redoing my bathroom, sort of, because I changed toilet seat, the one that lights up. It's so pretty, even in the power failure. Wait Wait a second. Tell me about this. You got a light up toilet seat? This is good. Sonia. I got one one a couple of years ago, and somehow all 90 pounds of me took it out. It was in pieces. So I got a hold of the company. And I'm on. A, I'm in the middle of a firm by myself. So I got this. I, they ended up sending me a new toilet seat, and I just put it together yesterday. And so hold, hold on a second. Beautiful. So what is it? So so this thing glows in the dark. Like what happens? It, it it's a battery operated. Yeah. And it goes on for ten hours. So like in darkness, the light comes on. And when you talk about leaving the toilet seat up, yeah, that's happened to me so many times with brothers, friends. But anyway, no. The, and then you and end the, up in the dunk tank, right? You're tired. Yeah, you don't know. Great. And then you sit down and you get yourself oh, a little I'm butt gone. bath. I'm gone. Yeah. me right up. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. my wife. My wife the, doesn't like that. Oblong toilet. Yeah. You know, the oblong. Yeah. And Those the other thing is, toilets. and the other thing is like, imagine in the yellow, let it mellow situation and you get a butt bath. That's just gross. Oh, I know. I know. Tell me about it. Yeah. But uh, no, a farm living is uh, quite difficult at times because you also have it's a brand new toilet and bathtub, and you get the rust stains going on it because of the well water. Oh yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. Like that. You know what I mean? So, what I but do. what I what I would suggest when you're sharing a cabin with family, when you brush your teeth, you put your brush, you take your toothbrush, and you put it in your room, because I cannot stand, I cannot tolerate somebody <laughs> else being my yes. toothbrush being next yes. to somebody yes. else. Yes, my I brother has used it. my toothbrush. It's disgusting. Yes, Sonia, I do that. You have, I take my toothbrush out because if that animal comes in, he will use it. Oh my God. Or or God knows what gets on it. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you, Sonia. I like that. I'm going to look that up. Good luck on the farm, Sonia. That's great. Tom. Hey, I'm going to do two blocks of this. Don't worry. If you want to call me about the politics of PN or, 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 or cottage life, 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Tom's on the line. What's cooking, Tom? Okay, Evan, so it's your mother and dad's cottage, right? Well, yeah, it was my dad's, but yeah, you're right. Okay, so are you allowed to go there on your own without a parent there below age 50? Yes. If they're not there, we're allowed to. I'm, 
I'm a father. Uh, I can do. I just remember that's part of the politics. I think that's sometimes, true. You know, <laughs> well, well, the other thing is continue the, long after that's true. 18. And and what about I'll can, leave you, it at that. can you bring a friend? It's like oh, who, who's that? Can't bring friends up. I like that. <laughs> I like that. I like. Do you, did you have a family cottage? Oh yeah, 1940, and uh, my grandparents bought it, and it's west towards on Lake Huron. Oh, that's nice stuff. Is it all, is it, can I just ask you, is it, and, and how's it doing? Like, is it on the shallow end or the deep part? Uh, it's, there's a 80 foot bank going down. So nice, nice. you walk downstairs and the last renovation of major was in, I think my grandparents bought in 1939 and renovated in 1942. So no air conditioning. There is Wi-Fi, you know. Yeah, you and open I, and the windows, you get the breeze. That's the yeah, air. Well, well, if you're letting it mellow, you need that. All right. Well, I, listen. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to thanks for the call. Um, let let this is blowing up. First of all, the politics of peeing is much more complicated than I thought. One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. Evan, there is always spray. Sit down and pee and read a magazine. I will get to that at the end. The reading on the toilet is a big problem because I need to read. I have the need to read next. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Uh, thank you for that promo, promo department, the evolution of talk radio, which means on a, an average show in August, we are going to break down the breaking news about alleged political interference into the largest mass shooting in Canadian history, which happened. We are going to talk to the remarkably brave Afghan interpreter, Maryam, who just joined us, who wants her family out. We are going to talk about the end of the muscle car era, as Dodge announced today. And then I guess the evolution of talk radio also re- contains the politics of peeing. Little did I know. Because everything's on the table. We will go there. We will go from politics and holding the ministers to account to holding my brother account for not putting down the seat when he pees at the cottage in our shared cabin. And guess what gets more texting than politics? This probably tells me something. Peeing gets more reaction than politics. Maybe that's why we take the piss out of politics so much. We should put it back in and maybe get more interest. All right. uh, What are your cottage protocols? What are the family politics? Uh, Now, someone said to me, and I'm going to pick this up, 71010. You can text me at 71010. There's so many texts. It's unbelievable. Sam's being overwhelmed. And a one eight five five six three three ten ten one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. We're laughing because the texts are like so outrageous. Evan, the man, the, because remember, my brother's allegation is that you should leave the toilet seat up because it's easier just to flick it down for the woman. And I am a you lift it up, pee, try to hit the bowl and not splash, and put it down. Now, many are saying you're both wrong. You sit down. The protocol is just sit and get a book and read. Now, that brings me to my next point. 
I do not sit and read to pee. However, if I'm doing a larger number, I need a book. I need a magazine. I like it in there. My son and I are similar. My daughter and wife do not know what we do in there. We like it in there. We can watch movies. We can read magazines. We can read books. It's quiet. I enjoy it. A doctor once told me if I hang out there, my colon's going to come out like a kilt. Like, be careful. I get it. (laughs) It's probably, I'd move in half my room in there. When my kids were young, just getting that privacy, I would have had the whole bloody room in there. I love it in there. It's quiet. No one wants to come in, obviously. It's peaceful. So, yeah, and now I'm at the point where I can't go without a reading material. My brother, I will say, to his great credit, he's in and out of there. That guy is the flash. How does he do it? And why? Why not take that time? Anyway, the texts are pouring in. I'm just telling you, all this happens. All this happens. How do you do that when you're with people as a guest? Oh, as a guest, right? When you're at a guest cottage and you have to use their, like there's not a guest. The worst is when someone invites you to their place, but there's not a guest washroom and you got to go. And you're like, where's the washroom? They're like, it's right there. You're like, oh, oh, we're sharing the washroom. Oh my God. Oh my God. How do you go? I'm going to tell you something. The other day, I was with, we were with a bunch of buddies, couples, as it were, on a hike, and I had to go. One shared washroom, three couples, and I really had to go. But so you know what I did? I waited for everyone to get ready to go on the hike, and they went outside, and then I hit the head. And then I had to say, like, how am I going to do this? I got to read something. So I grabbed the magazine and had a very brief read, too brief to really get into it. But did I enjoy that walk way more? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And back in our family camping days, my husband and our son would designate one specific tree and call it the pea tree, says Susan. Oh, I like the pea tree. A pea tree's a good idea. As long as you mop the floor with your sock. No. Who wrote that? As long as you mop the floor with your sock, it's all good. No. No, 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 no. You don't dribble on the floor and mop it up with your sock. What, are you crazy? That is... You want the, it's one thing to have the washroom smell like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you, whoever wrote that, I'm going to guess. I'm going to throw a dart here. You are a single guy. You are a single man. Because nobody who's married is wiping their pee up with the sock. And nobody's telling other guys to do it. Do not dispense that advice. Evan, the first thing we taught my grandsons was how to pee on a rock. We lived near Tobamore. Oh, I love Tobamore. They lived southern Ontario. Also, a man puts the seat down. Of Yes, I'm with you. I sit regardless. I like sitting down. I spend most of my life doing it. I'm really good at it. I've mastered it. Says whoever. I like that. You're good at it. You've mastered it. See, these are little things that men like. We are good at one little thing. Just sitting down. The thing now, I'm at the stage where, you know, the washroom's a big deal. You can't just go to someone's place. Like, you know, I'm at the stage where when you just like, here's your bedroom. I'm like, let me, let me check out the washroom situation. 
And when we drive, we do a lot of driving, my wife and I. She's got to make sure that the clean washroom is a big deal on the stop. In Ontario, folks, I don't know in Quebec and in B.C., but we have these on routes all over the highway. And the washrooms are okay. For the guys, it doesn't matter. I don't know what the sitch is for the girls, for the women. But, like, my wife, I'll tell you this. One of the reasons she likes a Starbucks is not the coffee or the tea. She's a teacher. It's the washrooms. Starbucks has a hell of a nice washroom, apparently. Sam, would you concur with that? You can concur. I would have to agree. They do have really nice washrooms. Um, I find, like, if you go to, like, um, like one of those gas station washrooms where you have to, like, walk through a really dark hall yeah. and, like, turn yeah. left and turn right, and then oh, yeah. <laughs> those uh, are the worst, but no, Starbucks no. has good ones. Yeah. Evan, there's a definitely a different type of washroom etiquette at the cottage. Always put the seat down and try to keep the the eeks down when the wee mouse sneaks out and runs across your foot. Oh, Cal, nice. Uh, for anyone renovating their cottage, do what I did. Install a toilet and a urinal. A ur- Oh, fancy. <laughs> fancy. A urinal? Well, well, well. We got some fancy listeners here, Sam. Soon we're going to have like someone, I also have a bidet. No, don't, don't. First of all, we are not, we are, we, I know there's bidet people out there. I know it's like there's B-Day people are like kitty corner to orgy people. Like, I know you're out there, B-Day people. I get it. Go talk to your orgy friends. I'm sure you're definitely. We are not team B-Day here or B-Day or C-Day, whatever. B-Day? I'm not team B-Day. I don't like it. I'm trying to be dry after. I don't want to be wet. And I'm sure the feeling for a couple seconds is good. I've tried it. It's just not for me. First of all, then what? What do you wipe it down with? Then you have to have the toilet paper and then the toilet paper. Like, I don't, the bidet thing just doesn't, anyway. We're not team bidet here at the big show. Now, maybe the next show you listen to at the Bell Talk Radio is all bidet. All the, we are not. Cottage rules, Evan, have seeped into the city. My kids never flush any toilets. They're 18 and 22. The youngest leaves for residence. I'm sure Hope's roommate is understanding. Ah, yes, that's good. Evan, I was feeling low today. Thanks for the last. My husband shared your philosophy. And they had a pee incident on the nature trail. Thanks, Ann. And take care. All of you, send me your text, 71010. We'll cover everything. All the time.